Good morning. How's everybody doing? Uh, it's wonderful to be here with you this morning. Those are great, moving presentations. This morning, I want to talk about being an offering to Jesus. One of the things that Drew and I have uh, between us is we talk about Jesus math. You know, one plus one or one times one is like a hundred. You know, it just, uh, it's amazing what God can do when we yield our, our resources, our time, and ourselves to Him. I'd like to have uh, my wife stand up, and just so everybody can see her, her name is Janet, and uh, we've got, as uh, the pastor mentioned, three daughters. It's very important to introduce your wife, particularly when you're a guest speaker, because I uh, heard a story one time of a guest speaker in a church, and uh, as people were filing out, he forgot to introduce his wife, and so as she was exiting, one of the greeters said, oh, it's so good to see you, thinking she was just a visitor. Be wonderful to have you come back. Don't worry about the sermon this week. I know it wasn't that good. Next week, the real pastor will be back. So I am the guest speaker, so I will not be back next week. So if you don't like it, uh, be encouraged. Next week, we'll get back to normal. Uh, if you have a Bible or want to follow along, we're going to just spend a couple minutes in John chapter 6, uh, one of my favorite sections of Scripture. And this is a, a great little story because basically Jesus has been ministering and teaching and great crowds have begun to follow Christ as he uh, is out. And so they, they kind of move down into the wilderness, uh, kind of the edge of the city. And uh, it's getting late and uh, some of the people that are good implicational thinkers and uh, think about details said, hey, uh, Jesus, we have a situation here. You better send these people home because there's no food out here. There's no 7-Elevens, no Costco's. You know, we, we got to get these people home. And uh, Jesus said back to his disciples, you give them something to eat. And they were like, oh, what? And a uh, great little thing tucked in here, a little line that says, and Jesus said this because he was testing them. He already had in mind what he was going to do. And I love that little line because, you know, so many times we think, you know, we have to help God figure out what he wants to do. Let me, let me assure you this morning, God already has in mind what he wants to do, but he's trying to provoke us as his followers to get involved in what he is doing. And so basically, just for the sake of time, I'm going to give you the story very rapidly. There's this great problem. There's this great uh, multitude. There's this great task that seems impossible. So when we look at the world, there's always an impossible task. I mean, I was stunned. I had no clue uh, that Russia had that many orphans, let alone another million that need care. I'm thinking, wow, that is an impossible task. But what's cool about this story, there's always an improbable vessel. There's always an improbable person. And we see the story here of this little 12-year-old kid or we, we, young boy, I'm saying 12, but it could, we don't know exactly his age, that sort of, you know, kids, if you've ever been, how many have been on Homes of Hope or been on Honduras or anything? Raise your hand if you've been, okay. So you know when you get to Mexico or some of these places, kids just work their way in everywhere, right? So you can imagine Jesus with the, with the disciples kind of trying to give them some instruction, and here's this little boy with some bread and fish, and if I was that kid, man, I'd be hunkering down behind a rock gobbling that food down, knowing pretty soon people are going to get hungry. I better, better use this stuff up before somebody steals it from me. And this little boy offers what he has to Jesus. And then the next thing is that Jesus takes it and he uses it and he blesses it. And then there's this impact into the multitudes. And that pattern in my life 
and I see it everywhere in the kingdom, is the exact same pattern. There's always an impossible task. There's always some improbable fool who says, you can use my life, Jesus. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. You can have my bread, my fish, do whatever you want. And Jesus takes those things that we offer to him, and he blesses it, and there's an impact into the multitudes of the world. I want to tell you the real story of Homes of Hope. Uh, which not many people have heard. A lot of you have heard some stories of Homes of Hope. Uh, Homes of Hope is a, is a program we started back in 1990, and we've done almost 2,500 homes for the poor. And one of the things we're finding out through a bunch of research, there's a great uh, study out from the Wall Street Journal called the Barrio Study. And basically what they're finding out is if you give somebody uh, a house and they own the land, so they both have to go together, so you have land and a house, in one generation they can break out of poverty. It's a pretty cool thing. And so we're finding out uh, credible benefits in educate, uh, children with a home are three times more likely to stay in school. So there's health benefits, uh, cuts uh, diseases in half, just getting them on a concrete floor. I could go on and on. So it's economic, health, education, uh, social, emotional. They're finding out uh, kids who have a home are less anxious. Uh, they, they're, they're, it, you have delayed development when you're unsure of where you're going to go to bed and how it's all going to work out. So you begin to have delayed development because you're emotionally out of joint. So giving a family a home, in fact, one of the funnest stories uh, or more meaningful things that happened to me in the last year is my folks uh, celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary last year. I uh, come from a good Catholic family, eight kids. And my, my mom and dad said, we don't want a party. We want to build a home for the poor with our whole, with all our kids, their spouses and grandkids. So 27 of us went down to Tijuana to build a house, and uh, we built for a family that had lived on dirt for 10 years, and uh, it was a three-tiered deal. It was one of the hardest job sites I've ever been to. We had to hike everything up to the top of this hill, and uh, when we were done, the 13-year-old daughter gave my mom a little hug and a thank you note and told her, she goes, you know, the whole time I've lived here, I've never once invited a friend over because I was too embarrassed in my house. She goes, I'm so happy today because now I can invite a friend over. I'm thinking, what? what kind of house would you live in where you were so embarrassed you couldn't ever invite a friend over for your whole adult, you know, you're 13 years old. So 13 years of your life, you've never had a friend over. Anyway, stuff like that blows my mind. And so um, what we're finding out is that uh, this little dream in the heart of God has been having a huge impact. And now we've got all kinds of opportunities in Haiti, uh, Dominican Republic. Uh, We just did our first home of hope in Panama. We've got some opportunities happening in the Philippines, so we're, we're excited to see what God's going to do. But here's the real story of Homes of Hope. In 1990, in January, I was a junior staff guy at the L.A. base. My wife and I lived in Los Angeles at that time, and we were going back and forth between Los Angeles and Tijuana, about a three-hour drive. And we were just beginning to see some real momentum for the ministry, thinking about whether or not we should move down there to be full-time directors. And the local director of that particular YWAM center in L.A. decided to kick the year off with an offering to Jesus. So I said, hey, Dave, what's an offering to Jesus? He said, what we're going to do, and this is about 45 YWAM staff. We all raise our own support kind of thing. And so he said, we're going to take an offering to Jesus, and then, then we'll, we'll take that money and, and, and use it for whatever God tells us. And I said, well, what, what, what is the offering going to be for? Because if you tell people what the offering is going to be for, you get a better response. He goes, well, you really don't understand what I'm saying here, Sean. What I'm saying is we're going to take the offering as if we're giving it directly into the hands of Jesus. Later, we're going to trust God that he'll tell us what to do with the money. 
I don't, you know, it really would make a lot more sense if we kind of figured out what we're going to do first. No, 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 you don't get it. So basically, okay, you're the director, I'm not, so, so we'll go with it. So we raised a couple thousand dollars from these 45 staff, and, and we're just sitting on it. And we thought, well, we'll give it to Runaways in Hollywood, and we've been doing some stuff in Thailand, and everybody was kind of brainstorming about what to do with the money. Meanwhile, I'm still going back and forth between Los Angeles and Tijuana. And uh, while I was there, I met a guy named Sergio. And Sergio was raised in an orphanage, used to be a professional boxer, man. That dude had some guns, you know. He was like a short, stocky guy, just a big gold tooth. And he built homes for the poor. And he, every time he told me a story, he'd start crying and I'd start crying. And after a couple of times meeting with Sergio, I couldn't take it anymore. So I said, Sergio, would there be any way me and a few of my friends could just come down and do one house? He goes, sure, I'll help you. I'll give you a good prize, you know, get you going. So we went down to do one house. So be careful, Drew Smith, what you do once. And Meg, and uh, lots of you who've started, how many have come more than once to Homes of Hope? Okay, a few of you. So you got to be careful what you do once. And so I went to Mexico to build one house for the poor with a bunch of money raised by some YWAMers that was an offering to Jesus that no one knew what was going to happen with it. So we built this one house. And some of you know the story. My three-and-a-half-year-old daughter was totally captivated by another family living next door in an old abandoned bus and kept telling me, Dad, you going to build a house for that family too? Dad, are you going to build one for that family too? And uh, I kind of just really sort of spoke to me, and I, I decided I'd do a second house. And so we did that house, and I think we did eight the first year, and then we did 25, and then we did 100, and last year we did 280 homes for, or 279 to be exact, homes for the poor. And so... Um, Anyways, about six or seven years after we had started doing Homes of Hope, okay, so now it's part of the rhythm of life, and we'd done, you know, uh, a number of years, probably five or 600 homes. I'm driving in my car, and all of a sudden it hits me. All of these homes came out of an offering to Jesus that no one knew what it was going to be used for, but God took it, and he blessed it, and he's begun to impact the multitudes. And I just wept and wept in my car because I realized, you know, God is so smart. And the reality is, if I could leave you with anything here, is that don't, don't worry about you trying to figure out how you can help God. I love what Blackaby says. Find out where God is moving and join him there. Now, don't, don't think that God doesn't already have in mind what he's going to do. And what we do is we enter into what he is already doing, right? And sometimes we look at what we have, you know, I call it old bread and stinky fish. I don't care what you do with fish. Imagine there's no refrigeration where, I don't know if they smoked it or where, but, you know, that, that fish has got to smell a little bit. The bread's probably a couple days old. And, and this little boy offers what he has to Jesus. Jesus blesses it, and the multitudes are impacted. I think this morning what God wants from us is for us to be offerings to Jesus. And, and even if you feel like, you know, you don't have that much to offer, I'm sure in correlation between what the little boy offered and the magnitude of the multitudes, it didn't seem like a whole lot. But when you apply Jesus' math, which is let me take control of your life, let me grab hold of what you are, what you have, your resources, your time, your talents, your treasures, let me bless it. There's an impact into the multitudes. I want to just share with you two, I think, the biggest reasons why we do not offer ourselves more to Jesus. One of my favorite sections of Scripture also is Romans 12.1. It says we are to be living, uh, living sacrifices uh, on the altar. So God calls us to be uh, living sacrifices, our true spiritual worship. True spiritual worship 
being a living sacrifice. And one of the things that happened to me as I began to grow in the Lord is I thought if I really get radical, if I really give myself to God, he'll make me do something weird, right? So, so if, you know, if, if we really let go and say, okay, Jesus, just truly be Lord of my life, he'll, he'll make me go to the Amazon. Uh, I'll sleep in a hammock and eat tree bark for the rest of my life. You know, that's, and, and it's funny listening to two Christians talk because some will say, oh man, you know, did you see that Africa thing? And one, somebody will say, man, I, I sure hope God never sends me to Africa. And the other person says, don't say that. Because if you say you don't want to go, that's where God will send you. As if somehow God is going to make us do the opposite of whatever we want is bad and whatever he, you know, and so, you know, so what's cool about Romans 12.1 is it's a pretty heavy duty scripture because it calls us to be living sacrifices, which is quite, quite thoughtful, quite, uh, quite powerful. But what sometimes we don't hear is uh, Romans 12.2, which says God's will for us is uh, not very good. It's uh, difficult and, and a super challenge. That's what it says. Read it in Romans 12 too. It's just really, uh, you know, God's will is tough. It doesn't say that. I'm just being facetious here. It says God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. I, I grew up in Minnesota, so they have these beer commercials, you know, great Milwaukee beer or whatever. And I got some Minnesota Lake or some Wisconsin Lake and got about six guys with a bunch of fishing gear sitting around a campfire. And they got this can of beer and they all look into the camera and they go, it just doesn't get any better than this, you know, as if that's like the ultimate joy. Maybe it is for six, six guys out in the wilderness. But, uh, you know, sometimes when we think of God's will, it, it's kind of like we have this distorted view of the character of God. And I think even if you go back to Genesis when the devil was trying to tempt Adam and Eve, it was always about distortion. It was distorting who God is, what he really wants to do with our lives. And so to the degree that we have a distorted view of God, it's almost like we're little two-year-olds. You ever seen a two-year-old go to an ice cream store? You know, mom and dad get them like the triple scoop cone, and two-year-olds always walk sideways, you know, they don't walk uh, straight, you know, they always walk like this. And so the little two-year-old, he's getting ready to take that big, first big lick, and you know what's going to happen, right? He takes that first big lick, and the entire ice cream cone just falls onto the ground, and immediately seven million ants descend upon it. And the little kid starts crying, oh, my ice cream cone. And so mom and dad go, no worries, we're only four feet from the ice cream store, come on. And they start grabbing little Johnny's hand, they're going to take him back in and this time probably get him a cup or something and go back in and get some more ice cream cone. But you know what Johnny does? He goes, no, that's my ice cream, that's my ice cream. And he starts freaking out because he is fixated on the ant-infested ice cream because it's his, right? And he doesn't really trust that his parents are going to get him another ice cream. And so it becomes a scene, and the parents are looking around to see if the police are going to come and arrest him for child abuse, and it becomes a big deal. And we're just like little two-year-olds. You know, God begins to put his finger on some stuff in our lives. He begins to speak to us. He, he, he says, give yourself away, and you'll have even more. Empty yourself, and you will be full. And we're going, but, but God, yes. And we start freaking out. So the number one hindrance, I think, from truly being an offering to Jesus is a lack of understanding of the character of God. God has something awesome. He's already been doing awesome things in this church, but he's got something awesome in store for you personally as well as corporately as this church. And just run. You know, we don't serve, you know, Saddam Hussein or Idi Amin or Adolf Hitler. We serve a wonderful God who will take our gifts and our talents, and if we yield it to him, just like that little boy, he will breathe life on it, and you can impact multitudes through your life. The other thing that's so important is faith. 
And I'm not talking about the Santa Claus kind of faith, you know, put 50 cents worth of faith, pull the lever, and you get the brand new car that you've always wanted. That's, that's not the kind of faith. When God, God spoke to Abraham to leave and make a 900-mile journey, Abraham said yes, because Abraham enter, entered into what God was doing. See what I'm saying? Sometimes we have a mistake about faith. When, when the angel came and said, your wife is going to be pregnant, Abraham, and he's going, well, that's going to be pretty tough, but okay, I believe Romans 4 is a great section of Scripture. Abraham is considered our father, not because he's Jewish, there was no Jewish back then, but because he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. When the waters kind of stir and God begins to speak, we need to enter into what he is doing by faith trusting him that he is going to do what needs to be done. I'll close with this thought. Joshua was called to go take the promised land. How many knew that Joshua had it in his spirit? He could not win the promised land without God, right? You know, he had to trust in God. But let me tell you this. God would not deliver the promised land without Joshua and the people doing it. Why? Because God is relational. God wants to do it with us. We can sit in our chairs and pray and pray, which is a good thing. But at some point, we have to begin to enter into what God is doing because he will do it with us. Okay, so it's great to pray. It's great to send money. But I truly believe we are to send ourselves. We have to enter into what God is doing. Joshua knew he could not take the giants without God. But God would not deliver without Joshua picking up his sword, designing a battle plan, and entering into the promised land to to enter into what God was speaking. And so I want to encourage you, be an offering to Jesus. It may seem like an impossible task. It may seem like you're an improbable vessel. All you really have to do is say, Lord, whatever I have of mine, feel free to use it, take it, bless it, and we can see the the multitudes of the world. There are people that go to sleep every night. They've never had the thought that their sins could be forgiven. Think about that. You know, we're going to celebrate communion here in just a second, and I'm going to just pray for you guys. And we have the joy of knowing that the shed blood uh, of Christ is there for our forgiveness of sin. There's probably at least 2 billion people in the world never once have heard the story, your sins can be forgiven through the blood of Christ. Never once heard that story. Go to bed every night feeling bad about themselves, feeling, you know, just never knowing what we take so for granted. And, uh, yeah, there's a hurting world out there. So thank you for coming. I really appreciate the many years that you guys have uh, uh, come and, and, and partnered with us in Homes of Hope. There are 3,800 people every month moving into the northern Baja area, thousands of people coming from Central America, Southern Mexico, looking for hope. There's 900 foreign factories. People are looking for jobs. Of course, they're sneaking into the United States as well, and it's a big deal. So thank you for being a part of uh, what's happening along the border, and let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for each and every person here. And as we look at, at some of these themes in the Bible, as we look at the world, Russia and Honduras and Mexico and just all the seemingly impossible things, huge tasks that are out there. We come before you this morning and say, you can use my life, Jesus. Help us be a little bit like that boy who said, well, here, take my bread, take my fish. Lord, we offer ourselves to you this morning as living sacrifices. Lord, we offer ourselves to you, Jesus, and say, would you bless our lives? Even if it's a small act of kindness, maybe taking over some food for a family that has someone sick with cancer or stopping to pray with somebody or writing a check or saying a prayer. Lord, 
help us to be more of an offering to you. And then breathe on that offering, Lord, and bless it. And impact the multitudes all around us that are hurting, that need a touch from you. We want to enter in, Lord, to what you are doing. And so we give this time, we give these thoughts to you and say, Lord, continue to shape us and mold us into your image that we might be the fragrance of Christ to a world that's dying around us. In your name we pray.